This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. My guest for this episode is Nisa Taylor, Criminal Justice Policy Counsel for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Nisa is the lead author on two new reports that we've issued, one that examines how the number of criminal offenses in Pennsylvania has expanded massively over the last 47 years, and another that analyzes how often and against whom cash bail is used in Allegheny County, the Commonwealth's second largest county. Links to both of these reports are available in the show notes, so let's get into it. Here's Nisa Taylor. Well, Nisa, thanks for taking the time to talk today. We have two really interesting reports that you helped to lead. You're the author on both of them um, and a lot of the research uh, and supported the research in these reports. So let's dig into it. The first report, uh, well, both these reports look at different areas of criminal law. The first report uh, we just released on October 17th, it's called More Law, Less Justice, And it analyzes how the Pennsylvania Crimes Code has been expanded massively by the legislature and numerous governors uh, over the last 47 years. In your mind, thinking about that report, what was the key finding or the key two or three findings? So, Andy, you just just said it. The, The massive expansion, our Crimes Code has ballooned since 1972. In 1972, there were 282 offenses, and now there are over 1,500, actually closer to 1,700. So we've just seen this extraordinary growth in the code, and we've also seen criminal penalties and sentences steadily ratcheting up. Almost all crimes carry more and harsher sentences than they did previously. And we see this at the same time that Pennsylvania's incarceration rate has skyrocketed. So we are now, as a state, a leader when it comes to correctional control over our citizens, an unfortunate leader. We are an unfortunate leader in mass incarceration, and we're facing a real human rights crisis. And I wanted to look at the way in which the Crimes Code played a role in that. You know, the other thing that we saw when we started digging into it is that the majority of these quote-unquote new offenses that have been added are actually redundant and duplicative. They cover the same behavior that was captured by our 1972 code. The 1972 code had everything law enforcement needed, all aggravated assault, assault, burglary, rape. It had everything you needed. We didn't need more charges, but that's, that's what keeps happening. And just pause there for a second. Yeah. There's something significant about the year 1972. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah. So um, so most of the crimes have been crimes actually for far longer since 1972, <laughs> right. for centuries. But prior to 1972, the code was essentially a collection of ad hoc statutory enactments. Whenever legislators had a crime du jour that they wanted to respond to, they would create a new statute. And so it frankly was a mess, and this was happening all across the states. So in response, the American Law Institute launched the Model Penal Code Project, and it really looked at the state of existing law and then created a thoughtful code of substantive law with a careful grading scheme, and Pennsylvania adopted that model code in 1972. And I think the report shows that unfortunately, By now, we are sort of back to that same state that they were before 1972, where, frankly, it's a total mess. Yeah. And I also want to drill down into that time frame a little bit, too, because you hear 
the expansion from 72 to 2019, so that's 47 years. So mm-hmm. I could hear a legislator sitting here listening to this thinking, well, you know, somebody who served in the House in 1979 probably, you know, screwed up. <laughs> but when you look at this report, not only looks mm-hmm. at 72 to 2019, but then also looks at that time frame from 2010 to 2019, mm-hmm. which that blew my mind as much as the the bigger time range because – not only do we go from what two just 82. over two hundred, yeah. two hundred and eighty-two crimes and offenses in nineteen seventy-two, by twenty ten, it was six hundred and thirty-six. I believe. I believe that's right. Yeah. So now we're over fifteen hundred. Yeah. So in a nine-year span, the code went up one hundred and fifty percent off mm-hmm. the top of my head. That that means that people who are in the legislature right now are on the hook for this. And that's exactly why I started looking into this, because last year it felt like every two weeks I was talking with Liz, our legislative director, and she would bring me a new criminal bill, and I would be tearing my hair out saying, we don't need this. Why would we want another trespass bill? We already have trespass in the crimes code. We don't need to pass it. We don't need another animal cruelty law. And so it sort of felt like death by a thousand cuts. We couldn't keep up with the criminal bills that were coming through and that's why I wanted to look at this in a broader in a broader light. Um, I also have to give credit to Paul Robinson who's a professor at Penn who's been extensively studying this and he was the one who did the 2010 study and showed the way in which it's expanded. So this is something that has been a concern of academics but it doesn't seem to have translated to the legislature. Yeah when I I was legislative director uh, legislators and staff would ask me about a bill that added some new offense or new penalty. And I would say, I could hire a lobbyist just for this area. You know, for every new crime, new penalty, we oh. could have a full-time person just doing that yes. at the legislature. And that would be exhausting. <laughs> yes, you know, it would. Wh- <laughs> one of the other things that I think it's really hard is that often these, you know, these bills are in response to a terrible situation. Right. So there was a terrible, you know, incident at Penn State where someone dies. And the prosecutors have all they need to charge the perpetrators of the crime. But instead, what happens is we get new crimes related to hazing, you know, or we get new crimes, you know, if there's a terrible incident with animal abuse and we get specific, you know, taking care of horses, these hyper-specific crimes that are a way that legislatures show they're doing something, but in fact have really terrible consequences. So let's get into the consequences then. So the legislature and multiple governors have overseen this bloating of criminal law. You call it degrading the crimes code. Explain the significance of that. What's the impact of having two or three or four different offenses for the same act? So it vastly increases the potential penalty for someone charged. So if you commit a single criminal act, let's say you punch someone, It used to be that you would just be, you know, there would just be one charge for that single criminal offense, and your penalty could be up to two years, the statutory maximum. Well, if you're charged with four or five or six offenses, you could be facing 40 to 80 years in prison for a fight, depending on what, how the police and the prosecutors charge that incident. So people who are facing 40 years in prison are far more likely to take a guilty plea they're far less likely to want to go to trial, and they're far more likely to get a pretty substantial sentence than if they had just been charged with a single offense that covered their behavior. Part of the problem, too, is these offenses don't merge at sentencing for the most part. So you can have four or five offenses, and you could be sentenced consecutively for each sentence. So you'd really, you could really go away for a very long period of time 
And what we've seen this doing is it's really taken the power away from judges and given it to the police and the prosecutors who are responsible for the charging and then responsible for offering the guilty pleas. And it really just gives DAs an extraordinary amount of power when they have this sort of buffet of crimes from which to choose. And it completely undermines a person's right to a fair trial. Or Absolutely. To, or to even have a trial. Right, because they're, because they're looking at such a terrifying penalty. Yeah. So I've spent a lot of time in that Capitol building. Legislators have, and you've alluded to it here, <laughs> or said it explicitly, that they have an insatiable appetite for making crimes that address some perceived problem. I mean, you've mentioned where there's some incident in mm -hmm. somebody's district, and then that turns into a bill. What are the solutions here? The report makes several recommendations. So, and, and I do want to point out, this is one area where it, neither party, neither party is a winner in this one. But, you know, <laughs> there really is. It is sort of equal, equal opportunity offending. Um, <laughs> but I do feel like there has been a growing consensus that mass incarceration is a crisis facing our state. And legislators pay lip service or may even really want to reform criminal justice. But we don't see that then translating into the sort of nitty gritty of just stop passing legislation. And every week, a new bill comes out, new penalties come out. So really, the first step is any new bill that comes across your desk for legislators, if it includes a new penalty or a new crime, vote no. <laughs> I don't care whether it deals with kittens, right. or like, you know, or and you love kittens. It doesn't matter. Please vote no. If it's about <laughs> abusing kittens, chances are there's already. Right, there's th already. There's a crime for that. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase Elizabeth Warren, right. we have a crime for that. We have a crime for that, <laughs> right. So, you know, I really, I think that's really the first thing is just to sort of have an awareness of this broader problem and please stop passing legislation. And that also goes for penalties. You know, we saw just last year a huge increase in DUI penalties. Mm. And DUI is already covered. And again, we see terrible incidents where someone dies as a result at the hands of someone who's, in car you know, who's, who's driving while drunk or intoxicated. But we have what we need. Law enforcement has what they need. And so we really have to, you know, legislators, I, I would really encourage them to trust that and just put the brakes on that. The other way that we could see this happening, and again, I want to give credit to Professor Robinson, is to require that every criminal bill has an existing crimes comparison statement. So in the same way that every bill needs to have a financial statement showing the potential impact or cost, I would urge the, the General Assembly to consider requiring a comparison, a crimes comparison. So if you want to introduce a new crime, look at all of the other crimes that are similar and see whether they cover this behavior and also look at the current grading scheme because that's the other thing that we're seeing. Penalties are wildly different among crimes that are similar. So really ensure that you understand what you're doing. And this would also give legislators a valid reason to say no when faced with you know, the kitten crime, right? They can say, no, I don't need to do this because it's already covered and here's the existing crime statement. Really, what we need to do at this point is, is recodify the code again. Mm -hmm. And I know that some states have looked into this and I would really encourage Pennsylvania as a state to look at overhauling the entire code because it has become so degraded by this point. Just thinking that is that sounds like a monumental task. Uh, I'm so curious as what to what it was like in 1972 when they did this. Well, it was really spearheaded by the American Law Institute, so yeah. a, you know a, a, a reasonable body. I know that in Delaware they drafted a model code 
It has not passed, but they did it with scholars who were sort of analyzed it carefully. I think it might be less hard than you think to draft it. The question is, can we get a pass? You know, right, would it be right. passed? I, I don't know, but I think it's something that would be really worth considering. And also just considering, you know, does the penalties we have on the books match what we think they should be at this point? You know, how, how are we considering all this? That's our pipe dream. All right. <laughs> so that's report number one. Let's move on to report number two, which just came out this week. Cash bail has been getting a lot of attention in criminal legal reform circles, uh, and you're part of a team here at the ACLU of PA that is challenging how Philadelphia courts use cash bail. This new report looks at cash bail practices in Allegheny County, which is Pennsylvania's second largest county. Before we get into the specifics of the report, I'm wondering if you can give a quick tutorial on the options courts have when a person has been arrested. People probably have a general idea of what cash bail is. You know, you watch Law & Order or some other <laughs> crime show. It's, like, it's, it's, it's a bit intuitive, you know, being ordered by a court to pay money before being released from jail. But I bet a lot of folks don't know the various options that courts have in that situation. Yeah, and, and before I even get into the options, I always like to start with the Constitution, because I feel like it's something that we easily forget, that release or, and, and bail actually means release, that release before trial protects the presumption of innocence. And this idea that you shouldn't be punished before you've been found guilty of a crime is crucial to our, our constitutional rights and something that's very important. And our own state constitution mandates release. So shortly after someone's arrested, you know, they, they get bail set. As you mentioned, there are five different types of bail, of which cash bail is only one. There is release on a signature, which means you just promise to abide by conditions and show up. There is release on special conditions. So if a magistrate or an arraignment court magistrate is concerned that someone may not show up, they can put conditions on that person and say, I want you to call in once a week, or I want you to check in here, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of options. The third option is nominal bail, where you assign someone $1 or a very small amount, but you get that person to have someone else vouch for them. Mm. So if you think that someone's not likely to show up, but you bring their mom into court and you say, mom, can you vouch that this person will show up? And mom says, yes, you can assign nominal bail. That brings them in. The fourth way is unsecured monetary bail, which says you don't have to pay anything to get out now. But if you don't show up in the future, you're going to owe a certain amount of money. And lastly, it's monetary bail. And these five types of release are provided in the law. And what we've seen through our court observations is that they are very rarely used. Frankly, most magistrates use only release on recognizance and cash bail. And we're really trying to encourage everyone to look to the rules and look to all the options that are available and use monetary bail only as a last resort. And I want to give you the chance to also just make that pitch for why cash bail is so problematic. Explain why courts should stop using it, or, or in very limited situations. So cash bail leads to wealth-based detention, where poor people are stuck in jail and can't buy their way out, and rich people buy their freedom. So it really creates two systems of justice, one for poor and one for rich people. And we know that cash bail, which leads to pretrial detention, has a devastating impact on individuals, their families, and their communities. People can lose jobs in two to three days, lose access to health care, lose custody of their children, put their housing in jeopardy. You know, if you get picked up one night and you're in custody for three days, think about what that would do to your life. I mean, it would upend it pretty severely, and that's what we see. 
We also know that it has a disproportionate impact on communities of color. Across the board, cash bail is applied in a racially disparate way. And pretrial detention really negatively impacts criminal case outcomes. Someone sitting in jail is far more likely to plead guilty just in order to get out, whether or not they are in fact guilty. Mm -hmm. um, and they're more likely to get harsher sentences than those who've been released. And finally, and this is something that I find pretty fascinating, studies are showing that cash bail actually makes communities more dangerous. Studies have, have sort of consistently been showing that incarcerating someone for a period of time leads to the likelihood that they will commit more crime in the future. Hmm. So if you send someone home, they are less likely to commit future crime than if you hold them in custody for two or three days. And they think that's due in large part to the profoundly destabilizing impact of incarceration. So if you lose your job, if you lose your partner, if you lose your kids, you got a whole lot less, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. You yeah. are gonna be more likely to engage in antisocial behavior than if you are home with your family, going to work, and you're not punished before, you know, you're not incarcerated um, right. for that short period of time. Well, it creates instability in someone's life. You know, there's emotional instability. There's just the day-to-day -day trying to get through, um, you know, find income and, mm -hmm. and food. And mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that does make sense. And, and just the last thing I'm going to say is bail is supposed to get people to come to court. And right. there are more effective ways of doing that than assigning cash bail. So, you know, there's been a lot of studies that look, you sort of think about it in the same way of a doctor's appointment. You don't need to incarcerate people to go to their doctor's appointments, even if they don't. Text messages, reminders, phone calls, all of those sort of common sense mechanisms work pretty effectively at getting people to come to court. And my understanding is that there are jurisdictions, D.C. comes to mind, where they're not using cash bail and they're not seeing any difference in people showing up to court or not showing up to court. Absolutely. So with that in mind, um, let's talk about Allegheny County. So we have this new report. It documents how courts are using cash bail in Allegheny County, which, of course, is where Pittsburgh is. What were the key findings of that report? So cash bail is alive and well in Allegheny County. <laughs> Before I sort of launch into this, I do want to give credit for our amazing researcher who, who did this, this analysis, Ari Shapel, who, who sort of downloaded the dockets and did a mm -hmm. fabulous job showing us what the data looked like. Cash bail is set in 28% of initial bail assignments, so almost, you know, a little less than a third of all cases people receive cash bail. And even more troubling, the rate of racial disparities is pretty significant. Allegheny County is only 13% black, but yet black defendants were assigned cash bail at a rate 12% higher than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. We also know that Allegheny County Jail currently has about 60 or 61% of black defendants. Again, that's tr troubling, given the percentage of black people in Allegheny County. And when you looked at those numbers, I understand that you drilled down further. Um, you mentioned race. You also looked at the types of offenses yeah. where people were being assigned cash bail, and this was, like, mind-blowing. Yeah, we were pretty surprised. We saw cash bail assigned at disturbingly robust rates for misdemeanors. Those charged with misdemeanor had their monetary bail set at $5,000, which is, you know, pretty substantial. And when you look at some of the most minor offenses, you saw, again, a really substantial number of people assigned cash bail. For example, 32% of people charged with disorderly conduct, which is a summer, uh, misdemeanor, 34% of people charged with retail theft, 
29% of people charged with defiant trespass, and 8% of people charged with simple possession of marijuana alone all received cash bail. That's sort of a really extraordinarily high number of people charged with minor offenses or receiving cash bail, which effectively keeps them incarcerated. And to be clear, the arguments against cash bail are the same regardless of what the person has actually been, been arrested or charged with. Yes. And in fact, listening to you speak, I, I'm thinking that this is really an argument about detaining people before they've been convicted of a crime. Because yeah. you mentioned the very beginning about the presumption of innocence. Yeah. So, you know, when, when people talk about bail, it's often like if a person's not a flight risk or a threat to public safety, there's no reason to hold them. Right, right. And we see that, you know, I want to credit Allegheny County for their awesome data analytics that they publish. And they they really, you can see the population of Allegheny County Jail. But it's been pretty steadily rising throughout 2019. And now their population is, I I think it's like 2,400, but it's about the same as what it was last year. So we're not seeing any reduction in the number of people who are being held in Allegheny County. So why Allegheny County? Was there a specific reason other than just sheer size of population that drew your attention there? (laughs) It was in part because we'd heard that Allegheny County was reducing its reliance on bail. Mm. So government stakeholders were sort of touting their progress, and we wanted to see what the data showed. And again, I do want to acknowledge that there was a drop. There was a 9% drop between the two years. So there was some progress made. But We also wanted to look at Allegheny County because it has this pretty troublingly high proportion of pre-trial arrestees. So I think it's 81% of people in Allegheny County Jail have not been convicted, which is much higher than the national, which is 60%. Only 20% of people sitting in Allegheny County have been convicted of anything. Wow. We also have, we've been troubled by the reporting on racial disparities, and that's another reason we really wanted to sort of see how that was playing out in in terms of cash bail. So fixing bail practices in Allegheny County seems like a system-wide challenge. Who are the key stakeholders who need to commit to diminishing the use of cash bail? If people in Allegheny County care about this issue, who do they need to hold accountable? Yeah, so, you know, I think we, we always start with a district attorney. District Attorney Zapala. While assistant district attorneys do not appear at preliminary arraignment, the district attorney is the chief law enforcement officer in Allegheny County and has the power to tell the police officers and tell his assistant district attorneys to stop requesting cash bail. Um, and so that's the DA can do a large, can do some, some, make some serious changes just by sort of changing the way in which they treat cash bail. The other issue is all of these MDJs, these magisterial district judges who assign cash bail, are all elected officials. And they're elected by the people of Allegheny County. You know, so I think folks who live in Allegheny County can really start paying attention to these magisterial district judge races. And if they see that the magisterial district judge is assigning cash bail at a rate that they think is too high, let them know. You know, I, I think we sort of forget that judges are public officials, but we can hold them accountable, particularly through elections. And we did see a shockingly wide variation, maybe not so shocking, but wide variation in the percentage of which MDJs or, or magistrates assigned cash bail. And so your pretrial freedom depended in large part on which MDJ you wound up in front of. 
Well, Nisa, this is really great information. I know it's been months of work, so <laughs> congratulations to you Thank and you. Uh, everybody who worked on this. And folks can go to the website and check out these new reports. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks. Thank you again to Nisa Taylor for the conversation and for these two timely and excellent reports. Again, you can read the reports by clicking the links in the show notes. That is a wrap on episode 33. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free.